0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Usine, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Ann Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program, and I am joined here tonight in studio by my colleague, dear friend, Jeff Klein,
1: the Executive
0: Director of the McNulty Leadership Program.
1: Almost got lost on the way.
0: <laughs> you did almost get lost on the way. <laughs> That's true. It's been a- I was prepared to ad lib for a little bit. Yeah, it's
1: It's been a moment since I've been in the studio.
0: (laughs) That's right. So, Jeff, let me just sort of tee up conversations that we're going to have tonight. And the first one is with Jennifer Dulski, and she is the head of groups and community at Facebook. And she has written a new book called Purposeful. Are you a manager or a movement starter? Let me take a moment to welcome our first guest, Jennifer Dulski. Jennifer, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having
0: me. It's a pleasure. Jennifer, so um, I want to just say a few words about you, and then we'll dive into your book, Purposeful, Are You a Manager or a Movement Starter? So, Jennifer, right now you're Head of Groups and Community at Facebook, and in this role you lead Facebook Groups, a product central to the new Facebook mission to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. You've also served as president and COO of Change.org, a social enterprise company that empowers people everywhere to start and win campaigns. I was also interested to learn that you were an early Yahoo uh, employee, and in fact, in 2007, you left Yahoo to become CEO of The Deal Map, a mobile location-based deal site that Google acquired in 2011. And that made you the first woman to sell a company to Google. So you've got wonderful credentials here, Jennifer. And we're looking forward to talking to you about your book. And I'm just curious about what uh, what inspired you to write your new book, Purposeful.
2: Well, you know, I feel like I've been very fortunate in my career that I've been able to have this kind of front row seat to watching regular people who create extraordinary change in the world. I saw it every day at change.org. I see it now in the tens of millions of people who are community leaders on top of Facebook. And watching them do what they do, I felt like if I could share the lessons that I was learning from watching them with more people and convince more people in the world that they too could do this, that we could really make a difference together.
0: All right. So, how did you go? How did you go about the writing?
2: Well, it's interesting. I didn't originally set out to write a book. I, I was giving a speech at a conference in London a couple of years ago, and it was a talk about um, you know how how our work and our lives have been become extreme, inextricably intertwined. And it was kind of an emotional talk because I shared a personal story of something difficult that had happened to me. And I asked a question to the audience, and uh, it was, anyway, it was a very emotional moment. I asked this question, and almost everybody stood up and looked around, and we realized sort of our common humanity. And after that talk, someone came up to me and said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And hmm. he happened to work for Penguin Random House, and so <laughs> oh, we ended great. up on this path together. And I was at first pretty intimidated about, you know, sitting down and writing a book, and... I had started writing for LinkedIn influencers several years ago, and I realized that what I loved about writing for LinkedIn is I could just break down the experiences I had into sets of lessons. So I started writing posts that said, you know, five lessons I learned from teaching high school or five Mm -hmm. lessons I learned living in the Amazon. And I ended up just breaking the book down that way, too, each story was a set of lessons and a set of stories made up a chapter and each chapter was a theme. And that's how it worked.
0: Very good. Let me bring Jeff's voice in here. Jeff. <laughs>
1: Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jeff. No problem. Um, you know, I, I am curious, the the framing of manager or movement starter. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I hear the building blocks in terms of the way that you approach the book. Um, tell me, what what drew you to the frame of movement starter? How is, how is that incorporated?
2: Well, again, what I was seeing in my day-to-day work is people who were starting movements, meaning that they were rallying other people around a common purpose. And, you know, the, the purpose of the subtitle is not to ding managers, right? Because, of course, managers are valuable, especially that they pay attention to shaping and growing the careers of people on their teams and so forth. It's more that I think we can all go beyond being managers. So if managers are the folks who do the best with what they're given, movement starters are the people who don't accept the status quo and push the boundaries and say there must be more that we can do.
1: And when we, you know, a lot of times when we hear social, when we hear movement, I I guess I go right to social movements. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think about, the big movements, right—the ones that are contemporary for us right now, whether that's uh, the Me Too movement or Black Lives Matter, um, or if we go back a couple of years, the Occupy movement. Um, the movements have have really been a part of humanity for as long as there's been uh, <laughs> been humanity. So when <laughs> when you use movement, are you uh, are you deliberately kind of pointing towards these large scale? you know, social change efforts? Um, is there a different frame that, that you have for
2: it? Yeah, and I, so they are, those movements are certainly included in the scope here, but what I'm trying to propose is that it actually includes much more than that. And mm-hmm. so the book tells stories of people who have started movements that are social change related. There's also entrepreneurs in the book who've started movements that make the world better through their businesses. And there are people who you know, start something small in just their community or their workplace, and those can be movements too. Basically, anything where you create a change that you want to see by rallying people together with you and effectively persuading, you know, people in power to help you make that change.
1: One of the things, uh, one of the topics that I've um, long been interested in, both as a as a scholar and also as a practitioner, is you know the concept of followership and mm-hmm. what what really attracts followers um, to support the the kinds of movements that you're talking about. Um, what what role or well, yeah, let me maybe start there. What what role did you see the followers playing within the stories and research you were doing?
2: Oh, tremendous role. So, you know, I, I sometimes liken a movement starter to the the person who starts a standing ovation, mm-hmm. you know, it's that kind of brave person who's the very first one to stand up and clap in that audience. And I ask people sometimes when speaking to groups, you know, how many of you have ever seen a standing ovation where only one person really ever stood up? And <laughs> almost nobody can say that because it doesn't happen very often. But the reason it doesn't happen is not necessarily because of the first person it's because of the next few people who stand up, right? The initial people who follow that first brave person right. are the ones who make it into a movement. And there are so many stories in the book about that. And um, the ways that people gain followers really vary. So many of them use petitions. They get people to sign their petitions. Some of them use tools as basic as email. So there's a story about a woman named Amanda Wynn who – um, was the person behind the effort to fight for the sexual assault survivors' bill of rights. And while she did use a petition as well, her very first action was just to email her friends. You know, she herself was, self was a rape survivor. She wanted to change the laws that she saw as being very unfair, things like, you know, police departments keeping rape kits only in evidence for six months before throwing them away. And she just emailed her friends and said, you know, who will be willing to help me with this? And pretty much everyone said yes, and they became her first followers, effectively.
0: Jeff, why don't you share? You always, um, when we talk about followership, you have a fav- favorite video that you often share, and I'm wondering if
1: Jennifer has seen oh,
0: it. Oh,
2: ha- I've seen it. It's mentioned <laughs> in my book, the Derek Simmers video.
1: Yeah, right. absolutely. Very good, I love right? it. Yeah. It's, um, I have used that with ages, I don't know, 12 to probably 90 um, and wow. it the, the first the eyes go a little wide and by the end the the room is always just chuckling along now with, you have to describe it for
0: our, for our listeners
1: yeah so our and, and for those of you who aren't driving your car right now thank you you can very easily um, google Derek Sivers or, or google um, <laughs> either first follower or shirtless dancing guy right and, <laughs> and of those are going to get you um, to the place. And he's got. There's a YouTube video. There's also a TED Talk um, as well that you can watch from Derek. But um, the the setup, Anne, uh, is uh, a an outdoor music festival. Something I'm, you love. I'm told it's the Sasquatch <laughs> Music Festival, which happens uh, out west. And the you originally see within the camera frame um, one lone love. shirtless dancing guy. <laughs> one nut. Yeah. And, and, you know, he, he may be a lone nut. He may not. He's definitely grooving to the music and that part's important. Um, but what you then start to see are the ways in which the first follower and then the followers that that first follower attracts um, shifts his role from one of independent actor to one of movement leader. Uh, mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it hits a tipping point and you have a flash mob of dancers, <laughs> um, you know, on, on the side of this mountain. Uh, out there.
0: Right. <laughs> so good. The thing well, that I
2: love about that video that I think it demonstrates so well is that the movement starter, how you embrace those first followers really makes a difference. Yeah. So when the second person stands up, he doesn't just, dance alongside him he actually grabs his hands and twirls him around and he really embraces that first follower which makes it even more likely that other people will join
1: yeah there's there's an interaction and what i've the the other thing that i've found right i think i mean to me the con the concept of followership is a really interesting one because um like to me followership is a choice to make someone else powerful and i I, i i don't know that that's a framing that we often offer to ourselves um hey what am i going to do to make someone else powerful today i feel like the frame is often reversed what can i do even for the best of reasons what can i do to increase my power so i can affect the kind of changes that we have in the world and and i think when we give ourselves the gift of uh you know the the power we have to amplify others um it's really an exponential increase right and just the power that's latent in the system and that we can tap into
0: Oh, Jeff, so, so good. True. So I have All to right. remind—I have to remind listeners, in case they're wondering what show they could possibly be listening to—that this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, Sirius XM One Eleven. I'm your host, Ann Greenhall, and I'm here tonight with Jeff Klein, and together, Jeff and I have the pleasure of interviewing Jennifer Dulski about her new book, Purposeful. Are you a manager or a movement starter? And how about just on that note, just if we could push this a little bit, because this is a show about leadership in action, but I do think that followership uh, deserves more attention time and attention and airtime than it gets. So, Jeff, your last comment, I think, is one I'd like to push a little harder, this notion of giving power to others Mm -hmm. and amplifying power. And when we think about power, you make a nice distinction, too, here between power and authority. So... I'm going to just ask you to talk about this and then hand it back to Jennifer.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, and and maybe what I what I can do is we, you know, start to talk about that. I I think power is something that we exercise. I think authority is something that we're we're granted, right? And you know, Jennifer with the examples that you're giving every everything from very active followers, um, like the story that we're telling here of the the interaction between Dancer One and Dancer Two um, to someone signing a petition, I mean what role do you find that you know that that power and authority have within this movement making uh, phenomenon that, that you describe I mean there's so many stories throughout the book. Yeah, there's
2: two things I would say about this. One is, I mean, first, I agree with your original premise that becoming a follower is, in a way, helping someone else gain power. But that in itself can be powerful. And I, I talk about this a bit. It doesn't necessarily, you know, being a movement starter, you don't literally have to be a starter. Just joining someone else's movement can be equally as powerful. And I do see that sometimes the roles are more flexible than we think.
3: Yeah, so absolutely.
2: So start as a follower and become a leader over time. And one place I've seen this happen really dramatically is uh, a woman named Jennifer Cardenas who started a group, a Facebook group, in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. And she was in the process of evacuating, and she wanted to stay in touch with her friends and family to find out where people were going to end up. And she invited 50 people to the group, and then... After dinner, she checked on it, and there were 800 requests to join the group. And the next morning, 30,000 people.
3: Wow. Wow. And Mm.
2: it became, in the next couple days, 150,000 people in this group. And they were all there supporting each other, et cetera. Jennifer, though, was the leader. And what happened was she ended up driving to a different area where she lost Internet service. Hmm. So the leader of the movement was no longer there. And what happened was individual followers were able to step up and say, I'll help, I'll help. And 80 different people ended up volunteering and becoming moderators of this group. And in the end, they were able to work with the National Guard and rescue 8,000 people from Hurricane Harvey. And it wasn't, you know, it was the leader who started the movement, but other people were able to step up, and that's really important. Yeah. Um the other thing I'll say about power and authority, the, the place this comes into play most in Purposeful is around decision makers. Mm-hmm. So sometimes people have you know, the courage to start a movement and they're able to gain followers, but they don't necessarily have the power to make the decision to change the thing they want. Mm-hmm. And so there's a, a lot in there about how to effectively persuade decision makers. And um, there are some examples of you know, various tips that people use, one of which I find has been really helpful is storytelling and people's willingness to be vulnerable and share their own personal stories.
0: Mm, That's great. How about, uh, Jennifer, when we've uh, sort of inadvertently covered maybe your first two chapters, the first on being purposeful and the second one, uh, and I love the title, Spark a Standing Ovation, and that really led us to the conversation about followership. You also talk about breathing life into your vision. Could you speak, speak to that chapter?
2: Sure. So all successful movement starters that I interviewed and that I've worked with They have a really clear vision, and the way that I've seen it break down is that a really good vision has three key parts. The first is a clear desired future, so what is the way you want the world to look if you accomplish your goal? The second is purpose, which is why does that desired future matter to you, and the third is a story that brings both the vision and the purpose to life. And so an example that I use, uh, although it's not in this chapter, it's in a different part of the book, but I think a good example here. It's okay. Is- we'll, we'll allow it. <laughs> yeah. We'll allow yeah, it. thank you. We're, we're not linear thinkers either. That's fine. <laughs> oh, what a relief. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There is a, a young woman, a teenager named Megan Grassell, and she has a story about taking her younger sister, her 13-year-old sister, bra shopping. Mm, and that's in your epilogue. The,
0: yeah. And she, <laughs> I love you know, that story. <laughs> she, right. So she
2: takes her 13-year-old sister out shopping, and all she can find are lacy, sexy push-up bras. And she thinks this, you know, this just can't be acceptable. And so she decides <laughs> then at that moment that she wants to start a company – that creates age-acceptable bras for teen and tween girls to help them grow up at their own pace. And her, she has a crystal-clear vision of what her desired future is. It's that she wants girls to be able to grow up at the rate they want with non-sexualized you know underwear, undergarments. And the reason it matters to her is because it matters to her own family. She has a younger sister that she's trying to protect, And she has a story that makes it really, really clear because you can imagine her walking into the dressing room and having only these limited choices. And that makes it really easy for people to follow along with Megan's journey. And she's now launched a brand called Yellowberry, which has been very successful that she's built into a big business despite the many, many obstacles she faced along the way.
0: (laughs) <laughs> That's great. That's a wonderful, wonderful story. How about uh, you've you've spoken about a little bit about entrepreneurs and those with social mission? How about a similar uh, example of someone with a social mission who has really breathed life into the vision?
2: Yeah. So here, um, I would say one of the. I mean, I mentioned this example earlier, but I think it is it's probably the best example that comes to mind, which is Amanda Wynn, right? She is herself a rape survivor. She can tell her story so clearly around the labyrinth of paperwork and complexity that she had to deal with in the criminal justice system, trying to keep her own evidence on, on file without being thrown away. And that vision of a world in which sexual assault survivors are treated with the same respect and civil rights as survivors of other crimes, and the reason why it matters to her personally because she went through this experience, and then the story she tells about that that experience she has, make that vision really clear. And what she was able to do, using her petition and other tools, she found so many others, probably thousands and thousands of Survivors just like her who had been through this all around the country and the world and they together were able to persuade Congress to pass this law unanimously which is almost unheard of as you know right. and now though even though they've passed it already in the US Congress they have to go state by state hmm. and they've passed 12 out of 50 states in the past six months which is incredible But it's because Amanda's vision is so clear, and then individual other survivors have been able to pick that up and carry on her vision. She essentially has a leader working on each state independently but supported by Amanda because her vision is powerful enough that not only she can carry it, but others can carry it, too.
0: So good. Well, Jennifer, we're going to take a short break right now, but we will come back and talk more with you, Jennifer Delsky, about your book, Purposeful. And I'm Ann Greenhall. I'm here with Jeff Klein, and you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. We will be right back. Welcome back to Leadership in Action on Sirius XM Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Ann Greenhall. I'm here tonight with Jeff Klein, and together we are interviewing Jennifer Dulski, head of groups and community at Facebook and the author of a book called Purposeful, Are You a Manager or a Movement Starter? Jennifer, we were talking about your book in the first half of the hour, and we also want to make sure that we talk about you. And so Jeff and I, during the break, were just musing and wondering if there are ways in which you're writing the book and thinking about manager and movement maker has influenced the way in which you lead or has caused you to think about how you've led in the past. So just love to have you reflect on that for a little bit.
2: Sure. I think any time you stop and think about how people do what they do, it actually makes you better at doing it yourself. I Early in my career, I was a uh, teacher,
3: hmm. and
2: I, I was a high school teacher. And actually, during the summers in college, I also taught at this program to help kids be the first in their families to go to college. And I found that by teaching seventh grade writing over the summers. <laughs> I became God
1: a much
3: better
2: <laughs> writer myself. I, you know, my friends in college would be like, how are you doing so well in this class and it's not your major? And I just said, well, you know, I wrote a thesis statement. About
0: <laughs> what, a, what a novel idea. Right, <laughs> I <exactly>. organized.
3: <laughs> um,
2: So that has happened in this case, too. You know, looking at at people breaking down the steps that they're using, it made me realize the places where I was doing those things and where I wasn't. And actually, when I, you know, wrote the kickoff note for my team this year, I used some of the things that I found in the book to be helpful for other people, and I tried them myself as well.
0: That's great. So, for example, uh, you've got one chapter called Get to Know Your Goliath. Uh, Has there been a Goliath that you've had to persuade?
2: Yeah, so the, the point of that uh, chapter is actually that I my belief is that we shouldn't see these things as David and Goliath, mm-hmm. that actually um, one of the things, you know, social organizers often see people as, as targets, and I think that there is a possibility many times to kind of understand the people we're trying to persuade and... Uh, that can be more effective long-term strategy, especially if we want repeated partnership from them than just treating them as Goliath and coming out with the slingshot. Um, But sure, there have been many, many people in my career that I have had to persuade. And I actually tell a story of one of my um, earlier mistakes at doing this in Mm -hmm. my career. And basically, it was a, a person who was in charge of the budget, an executive, uh, when I was working at Yahoo. And I was a kind of junior marketing person at the time and had to persuade this person to sign a big check. And I was nervous about it. And I was so nervous that I waited too long. I waited to the last minute. And by the time I asked, I had, you know, kind of boxed him into a corner and Hmm. it didn't go very well, needless to say. Um, I did get the approval, but it was, you know, not as smooth as I would have liked. And, you know, it took a lot to kind of persuade him that it was a good idea, which ultimately I was able to do. But uh, it made me that experience made me realize that, especially as I went further in my own career, and I sat in the decision maker seat, the mm-hmm.
3: person who has
2: to decide how to spend the budget, and I realized the stress, stress, and the pressure of that. It made me realize how much better I could have done earlier on if I had understood that and tried to give him you know, the data he needed to make that decision more easy for him.
0: Hmm. I have maybe one more, and then I'm going to hand over to, to Jeff. You served as president and COO of Change.org, again, a social enterprise company that empowers people everywhere to start and win campaigns for change. I'm, I'm really curious about your role as COO. What, how would you describe that role?
2: I think the COO role really varies a lot from company to company, mm-hmm. and in this case, I would say that Ben Rattray, who was is the founder and current C- CEO at Change, he and I really ran the company together as partners. Mm-hmm. And this was one of the greatest things about Ben is that he had a, an extreme passion for the mission of Change.org. He's very visionary, and he also isn't a very high ego person, so he mm-hmm. was very open to learning and to partnering on things where he had certain strengths or cer- certain things that he really wanted to do and others where he was really happy to let go. And so in this case, I not only ran the the departments that COOs typically lead, you know, finance and HR mm-hmm. and legal and so forth, but I actually led the product development organization to product and engineering and design and research and so forth which is less common for COOs, but I had done that throughout my whole career Mm -hmm. and had more experience. And, of course, we did many, many things in concert together, so it ended up... I I thought of it sort of like composer and conductor Hmm, Nice. um, were our two roles, yeah.
0: Very nice. Jeff?
1: (laughs) All right, now, Jennifer, I I know I said that we weren't linear thinkers, but I have have to do a little bit of linear work. I'm, I'm, like, intrigued at this point. So... Can can you just help get me from high school teacher to like That's Facebook good. and and I, I feel like there were some steps in between um so sure. so what yeah. what it so let me start here um what drew you to teaching and oh, then good. what led you to move on and, and try something else
2: yeah so I don't know if you all talk a lot about strength based leadership or not but we absolutely uh, do. yes we yeah, do so firm proponent of this. And I believe that my personal core strength is that of teacher and coach. Like mm-hmm. I, It's what I love to do. Ever since I was a child, I've been the one, you know, I tutored ESL when I was a kid. I, I was the assistant teacher at Sunday school. I was a coxswain on the crew team. Mm. And then I started teaching in the summer. So I have always felt like my... Goal and my superpower, if you will, is to be able to get the most out of other people
3: mm-hmm. and help
2: them really be their best. And that's why I went into teaching in the first place. And I was a teacher. I also started a nonprofit in parallel to teaching, which was the the Pittsburgh site of this uh, nonprofit called Summerbridge, which mm-hmm. is now called the Breakthrough Collaborative. Um, so I moved to a new city. I started a nonprofit, and during the school year, I also taught high school, which was an amazing experience. And by the way, you just
1: okay. you just described teaching as your your non summer hobby. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um, Yeah, that makes it sound not great. But it was amazing. Um, And I, yes, I did those jobs in parallel. And I learned so much from the students that I taught. And I also say often that it was a great lesson in public speaking, because Mm, I taught ninth grade sex ed. Uh, which, you know, once you do Jeff just
1: dropped his pen. Box
2: today, exactly, you like can pretty much do Q and A on
1: anything else after that. How did, how did we not lead with this part of the
0: story? It wasn't in the bio that we were given oh, by our producer. I, yeah, I
1: wonder true. why. Wait, so was that the job that was pitched to you? They were like, "We really need a teacher, and we're we're thinking ninth grade sex ed." <laughs>
2: Well, the funny thing is, they just
1: called it health. Uh, uh, no I'm <laughs> pro health.
3: Yeah, I very pro health. <laughs> <Exactly.
0: laughs> so. Okay, all right. it's all in the language, uh, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. Right.
1: So, okay, okay.
2: So How did I go from there? Yeah. So, what
1: hap- What happens after you know what I'm what I'm guessing is a few years in Pittsburgh? Yeah.
2: So, <laughs> what the really interesting thing is, there was a woman on my board who was very tech savvy woman. And I had, in the very early 90s, Internet access, because I worked at a school that was, at the time, wired for the Internet. Very cool. the trend, right? And I said to her, what is this? (laughs) How do I use this? And she said to me, you know, there are these two guys at Stanford, and they've started this thing that helps you navigate the Internet. And she wrote it for me on a Post-it note, www.yahoo.com, and she stuck it to my computer. (laughs) And I started using Yahoo. So I had 1994, probably, maybe 95, and I just became entranced by it. And I thought, you know, if my goal is to create impact in in the world, and I really felt like I was doing that in this job, but it didn't scale the way I wanted. And I thought, you Hmm. know, this technology thing has to be a way to get to impact at scale. And so, I went and got an MBA, as oh, I know. So right, wait, appear, hold on, hold on. Wait, hope, yeah.
1: Be- before we get an MBA, yeah. what <laughs> were you searching for on Yahoo? <laughs> you know,
2: I wasn't searching yet because it was just a directory. I was browsing.
1: Ah, okay. There was right. no
2: search, really, right? So I was just looking at websites.
1: Well, like and What was there? Yeah, the reason I'm at like, I can remember those early days, um, and I can remember the first time I went to Yahoo And it got me to this website, which I've tried to find over and over again since then, um, that was all about, you know, Kerouac and Burroughs and Ginsburg and the beat writers. And all of a sudden I was like, this place is better than a library. Like, everything's here.
2: (laughs) That's so true. I think the first thing I actually remember searching for was a funk that I wanted, which, you know, was so <laughs> yeah, cool that absolutely. you could find something like that and get access to it. All
0: right. Yeah. But now, Matt, we also skipped a step. And All the right. reason I go back here is because we have a guest following you, Jennifer, and he is George Anders, and he has written a book called You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Education. So I'd yeah. like to know what you studied in college.
2: I studied psychology in college. There you go. But I also was, so I was a liberal arts major for sure, but I also did a variety of things in college that were seemingly unrelated to any career I might have. So (laughs) I worked in a dendrochronology lab measuring tree rings for archaeological dating. I did a semester in Amazon Rainforest Ecology in Brazil. Um, You know, I, I took as many classes as I could on any topic I could that were not specifically tied to a career. So I firmly agree with his thesis.
0: Very good. All right, and then you got your MBA?
2: Yes. And then I I actually started at Yahoo as an MBA intern. So I got hooked on Yahoo and said I have to go work at this place and I came back out west because I'm I'm actually from San Francisco and okay. got a job at Yahoo before. I think I was one of the first two interns ever to work there. There were only 400 people at Yahoo at the time.
1: And and how does it how does a teacher coach show up at Yahoo in those early days? Mm, good.
2: Yeah, so, you know, my general premise has been first always add value and then help other people add Mm -hmm. value. So that's what I did. You know, I got there, and I was, of course, not a manager right away. I was an individual contributor, and I just tried to figure out how I could. My dad calls it helping the ball club. When Mm -hmm. I was growing up, he used to make us watch uh, sports on television, not for the sporting events, but to see the interviews of the athletes after the game. Because <laughs> he would make the point that the best athletes were the ones who said, I'm just here to help the ball club. And it wasn't about them, it was about the team. Yep. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, so that's a saying I use a lot now. And that's what I tried to do in the early days of Yahoo, was help the ball club. And then over time, I, I built teams and eventually I. Um, I was running marketing for about two-thirds of Yahoo, um, and then I made a career switch at one point, realizing that marketing, while I loved it, was not my destiny, and mm-hmm. that's when I became a general manager. Uh, and I can go further if you'd like, but I don't to stop there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How about just pause there, and let me remind okay. everyone that I'm Ann Greenhall, you're Jeff Klein, and we are talking with Jennifer D- Dulsky head of groups and community at Facebook and the author of a new book called Purposeful, Are You a Manager or a Movement Starter? Jeff, you want to pick up that thread in the biography?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I guess, I mean, how can I help the ball club? Um, The way I connect into that, uh, we had a a leadership conference here at Wharton yesterday and a a whole range of speakers from a, a variety of industries and backgrounds and everything else. And, um, one of our speakers is an expedition leader right and he went through this whole i mean wonderful kind of here's the wisdom i've i've drawn from leading arctic and antarctic um expeditions and from engaging in these solo sea kayaking um uh expeditions and and not having people around me and so there's a whole elaborate model and then he summed it up just in in a brilliant way he said you know Everything that I've pretty much pretty much discussed and described here to you comes down to one question, and it's the question that every teammate should always be asking, and that is simply, "How can I help?"
3: <laughs> right, <laughs> That's great. Uh, and
1: so, um, That's so right. you, you've got some kindred spirits, yeah, uh, uh, you know, thread throughout the campus yeah. here. Um,
0: in fact, can I add one more? Yeah, yeah. Later in the day, we heard from Sam Walker, who's written a book called "Captain's," uh, the sure. Captain's Class, right? Yeah about sports teams, the best, most legendary, long-lived winning sports team ever. And one of his chapters is called simply Carrying the Water. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the captain who does the hard labor of just simply doing what is needed to be done on the field or off the field for the benefit of the team.
1: Yeah. Now, Jennifer, we're making this sound very easy. Um <laughs>
0: yeah. You know,
1: te- teach sex ed for a couple of years and then really <laughs> go you know, to Yahoo. Yeah, they go to Yahoo and <laughs> Meteoric Rise um and then write a book. So yeah. like where you know during the tougher times or during the situations where you really um needed to make tough decisions. Um where did you go for support within that?
2: Yeah, so I think there, there were a few times in my career that have been these what I call pivotal moments. Mm-hmm. And the first was actually that kind of career epiphany I mentioned briefly earlier, which is that I was you know, very senior in the marketing um, department and I realized I didn't want to be a marketer. And I applied for the only general manager job that was open at Yahoo at the time, which was running Yahoo Autos. And I was able to get the job, but it was two levels below the role I already had. Mm. And so I had this moment with myself where I had to say, what do I care about? And, Mm. you know, do I care about the status and money and so forth? Or do I care about the role and the contribution? And I was able to negotiate with them such that, They came down, they came up one level and I came down one, but I did ultimately take a demotion and I took a different title. I took less pay, et cetera, to take that job. And Mm -hmm. at that time, um, in terms of support, I mainly called upon, you know, family and close friends to say, Mm -hmm. what, you know, is this a good decision, et cetera. It turned out to be the single best decision of my uh, career. That's great. Because it put the whole rest of my career on a different trajectory and, I loved that job. And of course, you know, 18 months later, I was promoted again. So it didn't end up, you know, it was far more helpful than it was hurtful. Um, The other times that I can think of, you know, are when something I've done has a negative impact on someone else. It's a lot easier to have a negative impact on yourself. Um, But there have been times where decisions I've made have had difficult consequences for others. And there's one that I cover in Purposeful about, Uh, a change to the business model that we had to make at change.org. And, you know, we had had a, uh, an advertising based business model coming into it and we tried hard to make that work effectively. And in doing that, we hired a sales team, a client services team, et cetera. And it became clear a couple years into that effort that it wasn't going to work and that we had to change the business model to protect the success of the mission and the company. And so, Mm -hmm we had to make the very hard decision to, you know, do a hard pivot, which meant we had to let go of entire teams of people that we had hired. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are really, really tough moments. And uh, as it turns out, when you do that at a company that is full of social organizers, mm-hmm. uh, it also gets a particularly challenging reaction, as you might imagine.
1: You were um, Goliath.
2: Yes, I was. And I actually, I, I now use this. Um, analogy that when you have times of crisis, there are three kinds of people that I've seen in terms of how they handle crisis. So when your house catches on fire, there are firefighters, people who are just all about putting out the fire. There are fire inspectors, you know, people who are about fire safety. Why did this catch on fire in the first place? And how can we prevent this from catching fire again? And then there are what I call the doomsdayers, who are the people who say, oh, no, my house got on fire. The whole street's going to catch on fire. The world will soon be on fire. (laughs) Um, And organizations really vary based on the ratios of these types of folks. And at Change.org, we had a lot of fire inspectors. Hmm. which was great for so many reasons but was different for me because I had come out of this career like really focused on tech where people are mainly firefighters. And when we had this moment, you know, I already felt horrible about putting people in this situation, and I had a lot of people on my team who instead of saying, let's just get back to business, which is what we would probably say in tech, said no, let's really dig in here and understand how we got to this place, how we can work differently moving forward. And at first it was really quite overwhelming, I'll be honest. And then I thought about one of my favorite quotes, which is from Ken Blanchard, who says, Mm -hmm. even the best athletes in the world have coaches. Back to the sports (laughs) analogy. And I thought, okay, if I want to be a good athlete and a good leader here, maybe my team will be my coach. And we went through a process that they led where they interviewed everyone at the company, talked about what we could be doing differently, got a whole bunch of ideas, presented them to me and to Ben, and it turned out to be extremely valuable. You know, they had a lot of good ideas. Many were similar to ideas that we might have had in mind already, but in this case, really came from the team. Most were easy to execute, and we were able to get through that situation, I think, much more smoothly because... They were proactive, and I was open to listening.
0: Mm, So good. Jennifer, how about I I can't resist asking you a question about leading as a woman in tech. That's been in the news quite a bit. So would you just reflect on your experience?
2: Sure. I, I think, I mean, certainly I have been in the minority in many, many, many situations, most conferences, most meetings, et cetera. And there have been, you know, many times that kind of, especially the unconscious bias shows up and I've had to think about how I want to react. So examples like, you know, being, getting ready to give a keynote at a conference and having the tech person come up and say, will he be using audio or video? <laughs> like I was the assistant of someone who was about to speak, you know, things like that. And I have chosen to try to, understand where those things are coming from and mm-hmm. try to talk to people about them. The the one time where I felt, and I'd say most of my career I have felt it has not been a hindrance and that I have had a lot of success, you know, both perhaps because of the things that my gender brings and despite it, you know, either way, depending on how you want to look at it. Um, there's... There's one time in my career where I have felt like it's been particularly difficult, and that's when I was running my own startup and raising venture capital. Uh, And I think that is one area in our industry which has just not caught up yet. And there are many, many people trying to affect this now, and we are starting to see some change, but that's one area that I think still needs quite a bit of work.
0: Oh, thank you.
1: And maybe just to... um to leverage that uh, uh, statement that you made. I, I was curious, you know, we, we've talked about the time at Yahoo and we've talked a little later about change.org and, and we haven't even gotten into your main... We may need a couple more hours, Jennifer. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but could you talk a little bit about the decision that, that leads you to become a founder of a startup? As um, cause I I'm, as I understand the sequence, that, that happens after Yahoo. That's
2: right. And part of it is, that you know, I spent almost 10 years at Yahoo, I had two almost full careers there, one in marketing and one in uh, Mm -hmm. general manager. And at that point, I felt I had learned a lot and I wanted to try my hand at building something myself.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And so that's what I did. And in this case, I actually, uh, I didn't have an idea to start with. And so I did something somewhat unusual, which is that I got hired in as a CEO of a Mm. brand relatively brand new startup where we had to... Turn off the original product because it had some data privacy issues and start over. So essentially, a co-founder of a pre-existing company.
1: Uh, And Mm. what did you learn about yourself through that process?
2: Boy, I I mean, I I, that process was an exercise in extreme failure. (laughs) I like to say (laughs) the product failed at least three times because we changed the product and we actually changed the name of the company twice. Uh, and so it was it really taught me a lot about persistence and uh, how to keep teams motivated through, as I call them, the cloudy days on the mountain. Um, and you know, I I like to say we just we just didn't go home. You know, we just stuck it out and eventually came up with something that really really worked. So it also helped me understand about what product market fit really looks like because having tried a few things that were working okay, it was only when we built the thing that was really successful that it made me realize what successful looks like.
0: Mm. So you sold the company to Google and then stayed to with Google for two years?
2: That's right, yeah. We um, we had one of those tough decisions in terms of whether to decide to take more funding which we ultimately were able to to raise or to sell the company and we decided at the time to sell for a variety of reasons, and I think, I think in retrospect it was a good decision. It's, it's pretty fun, actually. Now my co-founder from that company leads engineering for Google Local, and a lot of our product exists in Google Local. So it's <laughs> very fun to, you know, to turn it on and realize that billions of people are using the things that we built.
0: Well, Jennifer, we have just a, about a minute, and I always like to give our guest, uh, you know, essentially the last word. What what bit of advice might you have for people listening who might like to pursue a similar kind of career?
2: Yeah, so I guess I'd say realize your own power, right? It's This is the, the point of Purposeful is that we all have it. You can, you know, do it by adding value inside your existing organization. You can take something that you want to see change in the world, you have the power to do it. And people can find out more about that both by reading the book, which is at PurposefulBook.com, or I've actually created a Facebook group for Purposeful (laughs) as well, even if you don't read the book, for people who want to join a community of people who can help each other as we try to change the world together.
0: Oh, very good. Well, Jennifer, I really want to thank you uh, so much for joining us tonight. And you've told us how listeners can find out more about your book, I'm assuming. Am I right? It's on Amazon as well? Yes. There's, there's, there's okay. <laughs> very good. So thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. And your other guests sound quite interesting as well. So. <laughs> Thanks,
0: a great Jennifer. conversation. Thank, thank you so much.